My goodness, nothing is secret anymore these days, is it? So I know that there's a big sporting event on this afternoon, but I promise you we will have you out of here in time for women's curling. You won't miss a moment of that. Um, anyway, I'm super glad to be here. It's a privilege to be here whatever day of the year it is, and there's nowhere I'd rather be than here with you, just looking at God's Word together, and I'm so excited, really enjoying our study through the book of Joshua. And um, anyway, I just want to jump right in, but we should pray, because we know what happens to me if I don't. I get all discombobulated. So Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. I thank you for each and every person who's here, Lord. I thank you for the hunger you've implanted within each of our hearts, Lord, just to know you better, Lord, and to seek you. And we pray, Lord, as we go to your word this morning, that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray that that, that supernatural teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord. Teach us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 this morning. Um, kids, you guys are dismissed if you're in the with the pre up through the five youth group. Pastor Chris is not here this week. So you guys are in with us. And as we turn to Joshua chapter five, I want to remind you guys that God's the one that sets the schedule. So in Joshua chapter five this morning, you know, we're just continuing our study right through the book of Joshua. We've watched the children of Israel, of course, now crossed over the Jordan River, officially now in the promised land. God had made the impossible very possible, and they were safely now on the west bank of the river. They're ready for their very first conquest in really the taking of the land of Canaan, but it was another impossible obstacle that stood there very firmly fixed right in their way. And that was this walled, this fortress city of Jericho. And we, we wondered, as we started out last week in our text, why they didn't just strike out while the iron was hot, right? Just pressed on ahead right out of the river, taken Jericho while they had some, some forward momentum going. Remember, the, the residents of the city of Jericho probably sat there paralyzed with fear, just watching this whole miraculous crossing right from the, you know, they had these balcony seats right on the walls of their city. And yet what we saw is that the Lord had Israel pause right there in their progress. And they took what we called a kind of a strategic pause for some spiritual preparation. They took the time to construct these memorials, right? A memorial for remembering publicly and another memorial for remembering privately so that they could look back and be reminded always of this great work that the Lord had done so that they would be strengthened in the face of these great challenges that were ahead of them. And remember, so that they could then pass on that great story of God's great work to all the generations that would come. And at the very end of our text last time, we saw that it wasn't just for their own children, but remember as we finished up, we read in verse 24 of chapter 4 that these miracles and these memorials had a double purpose, right? Even beyond the nation of Israel, it said that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So these miracles were meant to proclaim God's power, but not just to Israel, but to all the people of the earth, so that all of the people of the earth would know that the God of Israel is the almighty, and the all-powerful God of all heaven and earth. And it worked, because now as we pick up this morning in verse 1 of chapter 5, the very first thing we read is that so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. 
And I love that verse because it, it reminds us that these heathen kings, right, from these completely heathen cultures, they understood something that we can so easily forget. And that's that if God is for us, who can be against us, right? They knew that they, that, you know, when God's people are really trusting in him, those pagan people knew that their defeat was right around the corner. And news traveled fast back in those days, maybe not quite as fast as it travels today, but it went out, that news went out right from the city of Jericho to all of these surrounding pagan peoples, right from the Jordan pushing westward all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And they were terrified. Again, put yourself in the sandals of the people of Jericho. Here are these two to three million people, right? Your enemies, the Jews, who have been encamped for months outside your window over in the plains of Moab. And then one day, they suddenly move closer. And they set up camp again right there on the banks of the Jordan River. And you already know some of their story, right? You know the way that their God had gotten them miraculously out of their slavery back in Egypt. You know the, the way that their God had supernaturally parted and moved them through the Red Sea. You know the way that their God had graciously cared for them for the last 40 years in the wilderness in spite of their unbelief towards him. More recently, you know that the way that the Lord used them to defeat those mighty kings, Og and Sihon, on the other side of that river. And now these people are moving in your direction. And you look at these people and you just know we're next. And yet, those people of Jericho and all of these other pagan kings, they had one consolation. And that was that there was this huge, swollen Jordan River, right? Probably a mile wide between them and the children of Israel. It was like a natural safety barrier. Because they knew that by the time they could, you know, these people could build bridges or put together pontoon boats, or even if they waited until the summer months when the, the river had gone back down and it was crossable again. And you have to figure all of these people in the land thought, well, maybe we still have a little bit of time. They probably thought that they had at least several months, if not several weeks, right, before they had to deal with anything related to these people of Israel. And then one morning, right, somebody from the top of the wall of, of Jericho yells down, you know, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> And you look out there and you watch as this water just starts to back up. And in one day, two to three million people are now camped right outside the gates of your city. And so word of that spread like wildfire to all of these peoples that were living there in that land. They knew that God was going to defeat them in their land because of the greatness of their sin and their wickedness, and they were essentially completely dispirited, right? They had no spirit in them. They were suspecting that they were doomed as a result of this, and they were absolutely right. Remember that 400 years earlier, if we flip back to Genesis chapter 15, we see that God had confirmed this unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham. And when he did it, remember how he sort of gave Abraham a preview of some of the coming events. In Genesis 15, 13, God said, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And then he explains in verse 16, and in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Guess what? This is precisely where we are now here with Joshua. These pagan peoples had been given more than 400 years to repent of their wickedness, of their sexual immorality and their unsurpassed brutality and their abominable idolatry, the, these child sacrifices that they would do in these unspeakable satanic rituals to these false gods that they worshiped. 
Their sin, the sins of these people were so great that their sin was a danger to the future of all of mankind in the world. It was a danger to God's plan on the planet Earth. And so now he's going to destroy them and he's going to displace them with the children of Israel. And he would use Joshua as his instrument of judgment. Now, what's that a picture of? Of course, it's a picture of the fact that Jesus himself will one day be the righteous judge of all the earth. So they were doomed and they knew it. And Joshua knew it. And so again, here, with this terror on their side and this momentum that you've got on our side, if you were to ask me, right, when you've just gotten these two and a half million people across this river, you've brought them into the land, you have this beachhead established now there in the land, your enemies are completely terrified, they're demoralized, momentum is surely on your side. I mean, from my point of view, it would be like, let's strike while the iron's hot. You know, let's, now's the time. Let's not even give ourselves a night off before we hit these people and wipe them out. So you can bet that Joshua is anxiously and expectantly seeking the Lord for the very next step. He still probably is kind of on the high from this victory of this miraculous crossing. He's got these wonderful memorials they've just built to look back to, but now he's looking forward. Right, for the next thing, and it says in verse 2 that at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, okay, here it is, make flint knives for yourselves. Okay, Lord, I'm tracking. I would have gone with swords, but flint knives, I'll do it. He says, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Wait, what? <laughs> this simply doesn't make one lick of sense. And I'm not even talking about the part about circumcising these guys a second time. Now, not to get too descriptive on a Sunday morning, but we know that's kind of a one-time deal, right? Now, we're going to see what that means in a moment. And I know this whole circumcision subject is kind of a sensitive one, right? But this simply doesn't make any sense when you look at it from the, the history of military history, you know? What army in the history gets within view of this, you know, to lay siege on the stronghold of their enemies and then completely physically disables their entire army? I mean, this really doesn't make any sense. And yet, I don't know if you've discovered in your Christian life, but sometimes God does things a little differently then I might do them, and maybe a little differently than you might do them. Again, Isaiah 55, God said himself that my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Save yourself some grief and underline that verse in your Bible. Print it up, put it on the wall somewhere. Because right? not only are God's ways always different, but they are always better. And so here the Lord looks, and he knows, and he says, hey, these folks still are not ready yet to take Jericho. And there are these three things, right, three specific things that he knew that he needed to do in them, right? Three more things to prepare them to possess the promises. I know that is not a very elegant title for this morning's message, and yet there it is, right? He needed to do these things to prepare their faith and to further prepare them spiritually for the conquest of the land. Verse 3, it says, so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. Well, I guess so. Right? We don't need to do a lot of research to wonder why it may have been called that. Right? Understand, we're talking probably about 600,000 men, probably more than that. And then in verse 4, it says that this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. That all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. 
For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Verse 6, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7, then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So what's happening here, right? The Lord says to Joshua, hey, before we can possibly take one step further into these promises, before we can take one step further into this land, we are going to deal with the disobedience of these people. So before they could begin to possess the promises, there had to be a renewed consecration to the Lord. Remember, the rite of circumcision had been given by the Lord to Abraham as the very sign of this covenant that God had made with him. Genesis 17, it says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It was the sign. Right? It was the only sign. And we know that the Lord was pretty serious about this. So serious, in fact, you remember how harshly God dealt with Moses back in Exodus chapter 4. He threatened to kill Moses as he was preparing to leave Egypt because Moses hadn't circumcised his own son, probably because of the unbelieving wife that he had, right? What Jewish circumcision meant to a Jew, it was the sign given to Abraham and his descendants. It was a reminder to them that God would keep his promises that he'd made to them, that he would make this great nation out of them. So when a Jewish male was circumcised, it was communicating on the part really of the parents, saying, God, we believe your promises. And then, of course, it became a daily reminder to that man as he grew of those promises. And that he was also personally, that he was the Lord's special possession. Because circumcision also represented ownership. Right? It was a mark of ownership. It was a physical sign that they as a people collectively and that that man individually belonged to God. Right? That of all the peoples in the entire world, it reminded them regularly that they were not like everybody else in the world. Because they had, and only they had, this beautiful covenant relationship with the living God. Now, the word circumcised literally means to cut around. And don't worry, there are no graphics this morning for that, right? Spiritually, it represented what it literally was. It was the cutting away of the flesh. And it symbolized to them that they were to be a people who weren't ruled by their flesh. They were to be a people that were ruled by the Lord, right? It was an outward sign of this inward change of this heart attitude that they had that they were submitted to God himself. Moses himself had said it in Deuteronomy 10. He said, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer, right? That their hearts would no longer be dominated by the flesh. And the great mistake, of course, that we see the Jews make was they ended up believing that the most important thing to God was the physical act of circumcision rather than what it represented. Again, that my heart is circumcised. It's not, my heart isn't dominated by the flesh, it's dominated by the Lord. I'm no longer a person who simply lives for the flesh, but now I live for God. And if we look into the New Testament, and for us as believers in Jesus, a physical circumcision is not at all required of us. Because as believers in Jesus, 
We have a covenant with God. We have this, this agreement, this contract with God, and it's based on the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not based on our being circumcised. It's not based on anything else. So our covenant is represented by that circumcised heart. It's represented by these, this desire we have too, and then by us living in this kind of a holy, obedient life for God rather than simply living for the flesh. To the church at Colossae, Paul wrote this. He said that in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So as Christians, we have this greater seal, right? We have a greater evidence that we're owned by God and that we're in relationship with God. It's a greater evidence than physical circumcision because the greater sign of our relationship with God that he is the owner of our life, is that God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit has now come into our lives. That's the mark. And that he has provided us now with the power to do his will and to do of his good pleasure and to live for him rather than for the flesh. Now, as we take a minute and we look at this, the imagery, right, at all of our pictures and our types, we've said that the crossing of the Jordan represents that baptism with the Holy Spirit. Then this circumcision of this new generation, it represents now, it's the possessing of that power of the Holy Spirit. It represents our will on our part to live a life now of saying no to the flesh, right? The cutting off of the flesh and saying yes to the spirit in those daily decisions of our lives. Now, a person who becomes baptized with the Holy Spirit, they can have power absolutely to live a life like Christ, but unless that power is applied to a desire to live that holy life, then that power is never going to be kind of properly channeled. So a person needs to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but then they also have to come to that place with the Lord when they say, Lord, I just don't want to live for my flesh anymore. I want to live for you. I want to live for the Holy Spirit. I want to live a life of obedience to you. And then the Lord is able to direct and to give us that power that we need to live that life. So he provides the power, we bring the will, right, and the desire to use that power to step out and possess those promises. Now, for the Jews here, <coughs> and the Bible doesn't exactly tell us why, they had just stopped circumcising their sons as they wandered around in the wilderness. Certainly there was unbelief and there was complete indifference. And for some reason they had not continued to practice what they should have continued to practice when they left Egypt. And so the last of those circumcised were the ones that had been born in Egypt. Numbers 14 says very clearly this was a breach of the promise on the part of the people. And so now, before they can enter into this promised land, right, they needed to be reminded that this, this sign of the covenant was relative directly to the land they were about to enter. So before there can be conquest, there has to be consecration. Think about it. It would have sent very mixed messages on God's part, and you know God never sends mixed messages but it would have sent some pretty mixed messages on God's part if he had taken them into the promised land and conquered it without them being circumcised in obedience to him. So he says, we've got to take care of this circumcision issue. And so it was, verse 8, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. I guess so, right? Probably not a lot of pickup basketball or soccer games happening that day, right? We're talking about nearly every man in all Israel, certainly every man who was under 40, all of the strong, the military-aged fighting men, the entire army would have been pretty severely 
incapacitated for at least a few days, maybe even as long as a week. So again, by doing this, they are making themselves absolutely, completely vulnerable to the attack of their enemy during this time. And we don't need to be reminded about how incapacitating this surgery is. You know, we think about, and I'm sure that they were thinking about, think about the story in the book of Genesis chapter 34, the account that, the, you know, the Dinah debacle. Remember Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, she was raped by the prince of Shechem. Her brothers then go and trick the Shechemites into making peace and convincing the Shechemite men to be circumcised like they are so that they could all intermarry and live together. Of course, it was a trick because once the Shechemite men had this procedure done, all it took was for her brothers Simeon and Levi to go into the entire village and they killed every one of the men of Shechem in one single night. God didn't call them to do it. They did it out of their own rage, but it gives us an idea of just how vulnerable a city would be after this particular surgery and how very, very vulnerable now to some sort of a counterattack the children of Israel would be here as they camped just outside of the city of Jericho. And if we think about this, we think, Lord, you know, I mean, okay, you're going to have us do this circumcision thing. We get it. You commanded it. We were disobedient. But couldn't we have taken care of this on the other side of the Jordan River? Do we have to do this right outside of the gates of our enemies to incapacitate our entire army? And certainly, what God was doing is he was teaching them that he would be the one who would protect them as they now walked in obedience to him. Or, or more accurately, I guess, as they didn't walk in obedience to him, right? Get it, they didn't walk because they, they couldn't walk. Right. Here's the truth for us, you guys. As we submit to the circumcision of our hearts, we are going to make ourselves vulnerable. Have you ever noticed there are so many of these commands that God gives us as his children that require the cutting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man to do it? You know, we look at it and say, you know, God, if I obey you in this situation, if I do what I know your word tells me I'm supposed to do, you are going to leave me as vulnerable in front of these people as the children of Israel ever were camped out here in front of Jericho. I mean, just think about our lives and how often does the Lord tell us, you know, turn the other cheek. He says, go the extra mile. He says, when you're reviled, revile not in return. And sometimes he asks us to ask people for their forgiveness. He'll ask us to extend ourselves or to lay down our rights, just like the passage that Don Jay read this morning. We have to make ourselves vulnerable in order to do that. And it is a huge thing for us to trust in the word of the Lord when, when we feel vulnerable because we have learned to operate a certain way in this world for our entire lives. And now all of a sudden, God tells us that he's going to be the one to stick up for us. He tells us that he's going to protect us and he's going to keep us in his hand, that he's going to be our strong tower. He's going to be our rear guard. He tells us that he's given us these spiritual weapons, right? The helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. And he's given us the sword of the spirit. And he's asking us to take these things up in faith. And he promises that he'll then take up for us. And so there's a huge challenge there. It's a huge challenge because it just isn't the way our natural minds works. And yet, when he asks us to do it, he is testing us, and he's challenging us, and he's training us, even to the point so often of feeling this great sense of vulnerability. Again, where his word is sort of beckoning us to do something that our natural mind says, you know what, if I do that, this person is just going to make a doormat out of me, Lord. And he says, that's okay. We say, Lord, you know, they could just tear me apart if I say no to the old man and I say yes to you. If I obey what you say in this situation, I mean, can't I just fight fire with fire? And the Lord says, no. 
I want you to do this. He says, I want you to turn the other cheek. We say, Lord, but you don't know what they're going to do. You know, they are really going to get me. And it is. It's a huge challenge for us to camp out and to disable ourselves in front of our enemies. And when we're forced to simply lean on and, and rely upon his promises to protect us. And yet, always remember this. The Lord knows how to protect his people. He knows how to protect you. He knows how to protect me when we are put in a vulnerable position as a result of walking in obedience to his word. God will never allow us to be overcome by evil, just like he protects the children of Israel here. And so again, there's this beautiful picture as they make themselves vulnerable in this place, right? They have this new, renewed commitment to God, this renewed consecration to God. And just as we've received that baptism of the Holy Spirit, and now we start to live, we, we engage our own will, and we say yes to the Spirit, and we say no to the flesh, and we do it confident that no one can conquer the promises of God. Verse 9, it says that, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and therefore the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Remember we said last time that the name Gilgal carried the sense kind of of a circle. And here more specifically, it's that sense of a wheel as it says that the Lord rolled away the reproach of Egypt. He Gilgaled away the reproach of Egypt from his people. This is that reproach of their lives that they had spent as slaves, right? Slaves to the world. And it speaks of the reproach that the children of Israel had throughout the world. Because at that time, all they were known for throughout the whole Gentile world is, yeah, isn't that that bunch of slaves there out of Egypt? And then who wandered aimlessly for 40 years because of their own disobedience and their unbelief. But now here they've entered in again. They've come out of their disobedience of those wilderness wanderings. They've come into the fullness of obedience back into that covenant relationship with this covenant sign of circumcision that the Lord had given to Abraham in the very land that they're now in. Understand, this is something that generation after generation had longed for, and now they're seeing it come to pass here in this place. They're no longer slaves. All of that is in the past. Just like for each and every one of us this morning, our past is also in the past. Just as our reproach, right, the time that we spent in Egypt, all of that has been rolled away. Just as Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. Right? That old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Never forget for you and for me that Egypt is in the rear view. Right? And the only thing that's ahead of us now is the promised land. So as we move ahead now towards it, surely with the circumcision issue now taken care of, right? certainly the children of Israel now were finally ready to take Jericho. And so we read next in verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So now a feast? Really, Lord? Do we really need to do this now? And do we need to do this here? Again, absolutely they did because they hadn't done it either since they had been at Mount Sinai 40 years before. This is only now the third time that they had celebrated the Passover as a nation. They celebrated the Passover the first night, the first time on that night that they, were, that they came out of Egypt. Then it tells us in Numbers chapter 9 that there at Mount Sinai, when they had received the law, they celebrated the Passover only for the second time. And now again, this third time, just before they were about to go into battle, here on the 14th day of the month, which 
as some of you Bible students have, I'm sure, already realized, this is 40 years to the day from when they had first celebrated the Passover as they left Egypt, which means that God had led them in the wilderness through their disobedience for 40 years and just happens to bring them back into the land just in time to take the Passover on the day that he had taken them out of the land of Egypt. But I imagine that's just a crazy coincidence. And notice this. Notice that the moment that they had been restored in their consecration to the Lord through that, that mark of obedience, right, through that covenant rite of circumcision, as soon as that was again renewed, all of a sudden it's like heaven opened again to them, and now here they are feasting in full fellowship with the Lord. Because after that renewed consecration to the Lord, they could now enjoy this celebration of their restoration with the Lord. And they could celebrate all that he had done on their behalf. In Exodus chapter 12, remember God had specifically commanded that no one who was uncircumcised could eat the Passover. So they had effectively forfeited this blessing as a result of their disobedience, but now they could celebrate it and enjoy that intimate communion again as they celebrated God's great faithfulness to them. Because the Passover, the whole celebration of the Passover, it was a time to remember the great miracle that God had done in delivering them out of the bondage of Egypt. And so what God is doing here by having them celebrate the Passover before they take their very next steps. So under, they have this gigantic step of faith in front of them in conquering the promised land. They're looking now at the city of Jericho. And remember, that's just one city in this whole land that lies beyond it. And with this first city, remember, these walls are 45 feet high. They've got to be looking at these wondering, how are we going to take even this one city, let alone this whole land, away from these seven pagan people groups, right? So this was a big thing that God was calling them to. And he says, okay, before you tackle this big thing that I'm asking you to do, I want you to remember the big thing I already did for you in your past. Because as difficult and as hard and as big a step of faith as the conquest of the promised land was, and it was a big deal, it was nothing compared to what God had to do to get them out of Egypt, freed from Egypt. That was the biggest miracle of all. Right? Two million slaves, right? The entire Egyptian labor force being allowed to leave. And then, of course, not to mention the whole Red Sea deal, right? So he just wants them to calm down, take some time, and be able to look back now at their history and to remember, to realize what life was like the last time that they were really walking closely in obedience and fellowship with him. Because when they do, what they'll realize is, hey, I have been in deeper water than this before. Right? God has gotten me through more impossible situations even than this situation I'm facing. And so they have this wonderful memorial feast. It says they're right on the plains of Jericho, probably right out within view of the city itself. They're enjoying this restoration that came as a result of this renewed consecration. You, you can only imagine the king says, well, what are they doing now, right, to the lookouts? Are they coming our way? Are they advancing towards us? And the lookout says, well, king, no. It looks like they finished that whole circumcision thing, and now they're just kind of hanging out, having a big feast. It makes me think of what King David wrote in Psalm 23 where he said that you prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. And what a great reminder now here in the context of this that we can always pause to celebrate the Passover without any fear. 
And here they are enjoying his presence. They're looking back before they look forward. And so often that is the very best thing we can do. And how often has God done that even in our lives when it seems like he's asking us to do something that's so very impractical, but he's actually providing something through it that's absolutely critical for us. Because what's happening right here at Gilgal, this is going to be the kernel of their courage going forward. It's going to be the, the seed of their faith as they now go out in regards to Jericho next week. And then in chapter 8 when they have that victory at Ai. In chapter 10 when they witness the sun standing still in the valley of Ajalon. Right? All of these things. Here all of it's being planted and it just doesn't seem practical that they would take this pause. And yet it is the most practical thing possible. And any time before you and I would face our enemy, right, before we would go out and try to face the world, we need to take time to remember the Passover. And I mean remember it in the sense of remembering our own exodus out of Egypt. That greatest miracle that God could ever do, will ever do in our life, our own salvation, our own deliverance, right, where we just come to the table and we remember that it's through the blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ that we now have access to anything and everything that we would ever need. To take the time to have that sort of Gilgal. Because so often, and I know this isn't always the case, but most of the time, when we're facing something huge that's looming right ahead of us in our near future that God's calling us to do, most often he is not calling us to do something greater than something that he's already done for us in our lives. And he just sometimes needs to force and stop us to remember that and allow it just to nurture that faith that's inside of our hearts and then to give us a taste of what's to come for us. Because here's something pretty significant next. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So what did they eat as they celebrated the Passover meal? They ate real food. Right, a Passover lamb and those bitter herbs. And then it says on the next day, they were able to feast on the fruit of the land. Right? They had real bread. They had bountiful vegetables. God had promised to bring them into this land of abundance. Right? Deuteronomy 8 says it would be a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. And yet for the last 40 years, as they wandered in the wilderness, they had only been eating one thing. And what was that? Manna. And as miraculous as manna was, it was the same thing each day, each and every day day, manna. And incidentally, for you Bible students, this is how we know that Moses ate Italian food. Because his favorite food was what? Manicotti, of course. Manischewitz, that's a good one too, right? So for the first time, right, they had now tasted the fruit of the land and they realized that this is just a foretaste of all of the blessings that we're coming into. I mean, they got their very first taste of fruit. They get their very first taste of bread, all of these different kinds of things. And so now they're feasting on the food of the promised land. And again, it's this beautiful picture of the difference in the quality, that next level quality of life that's found between the Christian who spends their Christian life wandering in the wilderness, right? They, they won't believe the promises of God. They won't obey the promises of God. And so they're on their way to heaven, absolutely. And yet their life is this wilderness experience. And that's one sort of quality of Christianity, but that's not what God wants us to experience. 
What he wants us to experience is to go into the promised land and begin to obey God and to possess these promises. And it's like going to the best brunch at the finest hotel on a Sunday after church, of course, a late brunch, right? It's like the best all-you-can-eat buffet on the biggest cruise ship you can think of. It's that compared to a bowl of lima beans. And the spirit-filled life, this life of faith and life of growth and this moving on to the next level of my Christian life, it's flavorful and it's filling and it's the greatest life that a person can have, especially as you compare it to Malta meal, right? Now, before we move on, I just want you to notice the timing of all of this, right? Notice it says in verse 12 that the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. Now, somebody do the math with me quickly here. On the 14th day was the Passover. On the 15th day, which just happens, according to Leviticus chapter 23, just happens to be the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on that 15th day, Israel ate of the produce of the land, including, as it says in verse 11, what? Unleavened bread for the first time. Unleavened bread and parched grain. And then the day after that day, the 16th day, which is the day of the Feast of First Fruits, the manna stopped. Exodus 16 tells us that it was also on the 16th day of the first month of the year, 40 years earlier to the day when the manna started to fall. And it would be nearly a thousand years after this Also on the 16th day of the first month would be the date of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On the day of the Feast of the First Fruits, which of course pictures for us the resurrection. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So it was three days after the Passover, the day that he was sacrificed, as the Lamb of God. So not only was the wilderness manna a type or a picture of Jesus, but it's the resurrected Jesus who then takes the place of the manna. Remember, Jesus had declared in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And then he explained in verse 58, he says, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread, he says, will live forever. So manna was good. Jesus is better. But all of this probably is just another random coincidence. So, so far, right, before they could begin this conquest into the promised land, the Lord has reinstituted the covenant of circumcision. He's reinstituted the keeping of the Passover feast. There had been this renewed consecration to the Lord, this celebration of their restoration with the Lord. He's confirming and he's affirming these promises that he made to Abraham. He'd given them this wonderful taste of all of these abundant blessings of the promised land and their life. And now in the final verses of our chapter, he'll do one more thing to prepare his faithful servant Joshua to lead his people into that very first battle. In verse 13, it says that it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries. Now, can you even imagine, right, all that's happened to Joshua in just the last week, right? He's moved this entire camp. They've crossed the Jordan. He's built these two memorials. He has circumcised 600,000 men. They've observed the Passover. They've eaten of the produce of the land. He knew that the very next thing on the agenda was the taking of this impenetrable walled fortress city, and yet Joshua still has not received any word from the Lord as far as a plan on how exactly any of this was going to happen. 
And so here he is out on some kind of a, a solo mission, right? Just walking out there trying to get a little closer look at Jericho. I'm sure he's walking and he's looking and no doubt he's trying to talk with the Lord and figure things out and say, okay, Lord, you know, anytime you want to tell me about, you know, you know, scaling ladders and siege towers or building some kind of battering rams or catapults. Feel free to fill me in on whatever it is you want us to start doing. Because as much faith as we've seen that Joshua has, we can only imagine the incredible weight of responsibility that he's feeling now. I mean, the buck stops with him. And as he's out on this walk by himself, it says he lifts up his eyes and suddenly he sees this man opposite him. Not only that, but more than that, the man is armed. And not only that, he's already got his sword drawn. And so Joshua asks a pretty honest question. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? Right? He says, are you one of my guys who's just out for a stroll? Or are you a Jericho guy? out on patrol. In verse 14, it says, so he said, no. Well, okay, that wasn't really an option, right? I gave you A and B, and you went with C, right? None of the above. He said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So this mysterious man now informs Joshua of the fact that he's the commander of a much greater army, even than the army that's there in Jericho, much greater than the army that Joshua commands of these two and a half million children of Israel, that he is none other than the commander of what? The army of the Lord, right? The entire angelic host of God. This army of all of the angels in heaven that are available even at this very moment to do God's bidding for his divine purposes. And of course, this is the unseen army that we're going to see dispatched to aid Joshua and the armies of Israel in all of the coming successes that they would enjoy in conquering the promised land. Did you actually think it really was the horns that blew down the walls of Jericho? It wasn't the horns, it was these angels who would soon be knocking those walls down. Look at the rest of verse 14. Understandably, it says that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So Joshua could tell, right, this was no ordinary man. Remember, Joshua had watched Moses, right, for 40 years as Moses ministered unto the Lord at that tent of meeting in the very presence of God himself. And Joshua knew now that he was in the very same presence. Because this man who stood in front of him, this was nothing less than the Lord Jesus himself. Because after this renewed consecration to the Lord, and after our celebration of restoration with the Lord, there's this fresh revelation that so often comes of the Lord. Specifically here, this is what's known as a Christophany in the Bible. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ the Son of God, in the pages of the Old Testament, long before he would be born as a baby there in Bethlehem. Right? We remember he had appeared to Abraham back in Genesis 14 as that mysterious Melchizedek. Right? Then he appeared to Jacob as that man who wrestled with him in Genesis chapter 32. And now here he appears to Joshua. Verse 15 says that then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So if you still weren't convinced that this was Jesus, now you can be convinced. Because no other presence makes unholy ground in a pagan-occupied land holy. 
right? No regular angel of God would receive worship that's due only to God himself. This is Jesus appearing to Joshua. No one else but Jehovah God himself could say what he says here, those very same words that he had spoken to Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus 3. So understand, the very same experience that Moses experienced just prior to his great ministry, here's the same experience that Joshua is now having with the Lord. He has been put into this position of incredible responsibility and of leadership, but the thing that Jesus establishes here for Joshua, right at the beginning, before the very first battle, right before the conquest of the land really begins, the thing that Jesus establishes is to let Joshua know, you are not in charge. I am in charge, Joshua. Right? You're number two now. I'm the commander, and this army, it's actually the Lord's army. And remember this, you guys. When Jesus shows up in our lives, it's never just to help out, it's to take over. Right? When we've been given this fresh revelation of the Lord, it's because he is about to do something fresh in our lives. And that fresh revelation should always lead us to a very important realization. Here's this very important lesson, lesson for Joshua to realize. He's now doing the Lord's work, and the Lord is the one who's going to make sure that his work is successful. It doesn't all depend on Joshua. And so this one encounter now has just set the stage for this first city that they're going to go into and for every victory that they were about to enjoy from then on that's ahead of them. So as we close this morning, whatever it is that's ahead of you in your life, whatever big battle you might be facing in order to enter into those promises that God has promised to you, let me assure you of one thing. Jesus got you. Amen? He's got you. He already miraculously delivered you from Egypt and he brought you through the Red Sea and he has sustained you during all of those years of your own wilderness wanderings. He's now brought you across the Jordan. The battle was his and it absolutely still is his. And remember this, if he was willing to make the sacrifice that was required of him so that you could be saved, right? his life for your life on the cross of Calvary, if he was willing to do that, then how much more is he going to be willing to lead you into possessing every single promise in the pages of the New Testament? And yet we say, Lord, this one's too hard. You know, this battle's too big. You know, I look at this promise and you say that you'll do it for me, but people have been telling me this about myself for the last 40 years and I know that it's true and, you know, I think you're saying something different, but I just don't believe that that could actually happen in my life. And we can say all of those things and he says to us, the fight is mine. He said, and I already won this battle. He says, just let me reveal myself to you as the commander of the Lord's army. If God was willing to sacrifice his son, right, to win that battle for us, then there is no way absolutely in this world that he's not going to do the lesser thing, right, of now enabling us to possess all of these promises. It's like Paul asks rhetorically in Romans 8. He says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So what the children of Israel learned that day in the plains of Jericho is what we need to remember, that after our salvation, all of the rest of the battles are smaller battles. And our commander Jesus has even this battle, whatever it is that's in front of you, he has that battle already in the bag. And our part is simply this renewed consecration and this restoration with the Lord and then being prepared to just receive this fresh revelation from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we do thank you for the great 
encouragement that it provides to us, Lord. And I know there are people here this morning that are facing deep difficulties in their lives, Lord. Fortified walls that are standing in front of them, Lord, that they have no idea how they are going to knock down, Lord. And I pray that you'd minister to each one of our hearts, Lord, that you're not asking us to knock anything down. Lord, you're not asking us even to, to lead the charge, Lord, but that we would simply fall in behind you Lord, I just realize that you've got this battle and it's already won. You've won it in the past, Lord, on the cross of Calvary. Lord, that we don't fight for victory, Lord. We fight from victory. And I pray that you would minister that truth to each of our hearts this morning. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's uh, worship the Lord.